Hello, everyone. Thank you for tuning in to Point of Insanity Game Studios Geekery in General podcast. I am Al, and it's been a while since I've had a, a solo episode where I've more or less monologued. I, I know my Bargain Bin Adventures and 8-Bit Flashbacks, technically those are solo episodes, I guess you could say. Uh, though there was that one Bargain Bin Adventure for Arc Rise Fantasia where my friend James assisted me. But it's been a while since I've done just a topic on my own. So this is... Technically, this is the 100th podcast I've released, though this is only episode 97 of Geekery in general, and the or 98, depending on how you want to look at it. I did do an episode zero, but there wasn't really a specific topic. That was just more of an introduction. And then around Halloween, I had a couple little uh, light-hearted attempts at humor that I did. Well, one of them was kind of a light-hearted uh, hu- attempt at humor. Uh, the other was just more of a dramatic reading of an excerpt from the emissary. But anyways, on to today's topic. Today, I am going to talk about the hero's journey. Now, chances are you've heard this term, but not everyone is necessarily familiar with what it means and where it comes from. The hero's journey is a form of the monomyth, which is basically looking for reoccurring themes and stories and legends. The monomyth is often used in context of heroic initiations, but if you look hard enough, you can apply the theory to other types of myths as well. This is a field of study called comparative mythology which is essentially searching for similar ideas and patterns in the myths and stories of various cultures. It's a fascinating field because it can incorporate methods from many different areas of study, including psychology, history, religion, language, and anthropology. One of the things that makes comparative mythology interesting is that people who have training in vastly different fields can take a look at a myth from a particular culture and interpret it according to their respective areas of expertise. Let me give you an example. Long-time listeners to the show might remember that I've mentioned here and there that I do have a degree in religious studies. My friend Dan from the Radio Free Borderlands podcast has a degree in psychology and his wife, Shannon, has a degree in anthropology. Now, if we were to take a look at a myth, each of us could apply what we learned in our studies to come up with different interpretations of that myth. Dan might look for things that hint at a particular motivation or pattern of behavior like a psychologist would. Shannon might look for things that are considered acceptable or forbidden in the culture that gave us that myth. And I would look at it from a religious study standpoint where I would look at some of the religious beliefs of the culture. And since I do have a bit of a background in astronomy, I might find a way to connect it to what we know about how that culture viewed the changes in the sky if it was applicable to the particular type of story. Uh, For example, some of the seasonal myths are 
a good example of where you could apply that type of knowledge a lot of times we see stories involving the dying and rising fertility god and sometimes the uh, constellations that uh, some of the people in the Mideast saw play into those particular uh, legends for example the constellation Virgo the Virgin was associated with Ishtar and there was another constellation I think that was associated with her husband Dumuzi and again they play a dying rising fertility god not unlike the Greek legend of Persephone where when a certain constellation appears in the sky it means that this fertility goddess is returning from the underworld so winter is going to finally end whereas when this constellation starts to set well that means that the fertility goddess has to or god has to descend to the underworld and will get winter creation stories like heroic stories often share similar themes that can be looked at in comparative religious studies some of you might recall episode 57 crafting a religion one common creation motif I mentioned is dismemberment of the primordial giant these stories usually involve a battle of some kind followed by the creation of the world through various parts of the giant and then usually creation of mankind follows we can compare the Norse creation as told in the Voluspa and the Babylonian creation told in the Enuma Elish. And I apologize in this next couple segments if I mispronounce a few things. Now for the Voluspa, I'm going to be reading from the Poetic Edda translation by Carolyn Larrington, which is available from Oxford University Press. This particular poem uh, Odin is talking with a seersress who tells him about the creation and the destruction of the world. Now, in the beginning of the poem, she mentions, Young were the years when Ymir made his settlement. There was no sand, nor sea, nor cool waves. Earth was nowhere, nor the sky above. Chaos yawned. Grass was there nowhere. First, the sons of Burr, brought up the earth, the glorious ones who shaped the world between. The sun shone from the south on the hall of stones, and the soil was grown over with green plants. And the Voluspa doesn't really fill in the details as to the actual battle and such. That we get from other poems. Uh, for example, we've got one poem called Grimnir's Sains. Now in this poem... Odin and his wife Frigg are comparing the fates of two of their foster children, Giroth and Agnar. Giroth took the throne after the fa their father, the king, died, and Agnar lived a humble life. Frigg accused Odin's chosen Giroth of being rude to his guests, which was a pretty serious thing because the Norse, despite the reputation of being these bloodthirsty Viking raiders, they actually had a very strong respect for the virtue of hospitality. Because in the colder lands that the Scandinavians came from, you know, especially way back then, you know, just not being able to find shelter 
could result in in death because of the cold. So, like I said, hospitality was very, very important uh, to the Norsemen. Well, God went to visit Geroth in disguise, and due to Frigg's manipulations, Geroth captured Odin and tortured him for several nights. However, Agnar took pity on Odin and brought him a drink. As a reward for Agnar's kindness, Odin bestowed upon him the knowledge of the cosmos. In verse 40 and 41, he details how he and his brothers created Midgard the earth. From Ymir's flesh the earth was made, and from his blood the sea, mountains from his bones, trees from his hair, and from his skull the sky. And from his eyelashes the cheerful gods made earth in the middle for men, and from his brain were the hard-tempered clouds all made. And occasionally other types of poems will uh, go into it a little bit as well. For example, it's uh, referred to in another poem called Valthrudnir Sains, where Odin is engaging in a, in a riddle contest with a giant. Now let's compare that to the Babylonian creation of the Enuma Elish, which means when on high. Now this translation is from Stephanie Dolly, a book called Myths from Mesopotamia, and this is also another book that is available through Oxford University Press. The epic of creation starts on its first tablet. When skies above were not yet named, nor earth below pronounced by name, Apsu, the first one, the begetter, and maker Tiamat, who bore them all, had mixed their waters together. So this is where we see two primordial, two primordial deities, Apsu and Tiamat, creating the world from nothingness. Or actually, they beget the gods. They didn't quite create the world yet. Well, essentially what happens is there's some struggles between uh, Apsu, Tiamat, and their children. And eventually Tiamat decides she's going to destroy her children. So that's when the god Marduk uh, goes forth to defeat her. And the this is on like one of the other tablets in the creation uh, epic, uh, Tablet 5. And the at least in the translation book I have, there's several blanks because I guess the tablet was damaged in several areas. So we don't know the entire story. It does get a little bit of long-winded, though, so I am going to skip around a few places here. But Opened up gates in both ribs, made strong bolts to left and right. With her liver he located the zenith. He made the crescent moon appear and trusted night to it. And designated in it the jewel of night to mark out the days. Okay, fast-forwarding a little bit. He put into groups and made clouds scud, Rising winds, making rain, making fog billow by collecting her poison. He assigned for himself and let his own hand control it. He placed her head heaped up, opened up springs, water gushed out. He opened the Euphrates and the Tigris from her eyes, closed her nostrils. He piled up clear-cut mountains from her udder bored water holes to drain off the catch water. He laid her tail across, tied it fast as the cosmic bond, which some people speculate that the Milky Way in Babylonian astronomy may have believed to have been uh, the tail of Tiamat. He set her thigh to make fast the sky. With half of her he made a roof, 
and mixed fixed the earth. He, the work, made the insides of Tiamat surge, spread his net, made it extend completely. So those are just a couple examples, you know, again, where we see that uh, the again, dismemberment of the primordial giant where uh, the gods defeat some sort of great beast and use it to create the world that we are living in. Now, creation stories are not the only stories that have been analyzed in this manner. Similar comparisons can come when analyzing eschatology or end-time myths. Usually in these myths, there's a series of warnings or catastrophes that lead up to the end-time battle, followed by a restoration. Rarely does the end of the world mean the end of everything. It is often seen as a transition to a new, perfect world that is free from the sins and evils of the previous world. Another aspect of comparative mythology is looking at the gods or characters in different religions or cultures and looking for common characteristics. Now, this is an old... practice, and we can see an example uh, back when the Roman historian Tatticus, and I apologize if I mispronounce his name, traveled to what we now know as Germany in the first century, and he wrote a book called On the Origin and Situation of the Germanic Peoples. He noted that the Germans he came into contact with venerated three gods whom he identified as Hercules, Mercury, and Mars. These were the Germanic gods Thuner, Woden, and Tiwaz, who correspond to the Norse gods Thor, Odin, and Tyr. Now the comparison of Tyr and Mars makes sense since both were gods of war. The comparison of Hercules and Thor is also pretty easy to understand as both of these figures were shown to have tremendous physical strength. Tatticus equated Odin with Mercury. Now this might seem strange as Odin is the ruler of the Norse pantheon. Most likely he was associating Odin and Mercury because of their role of the psychopomp or the one who guided the souls of the dead to the afterlife. Another common practice seen in comparative mythology is using the trifunctional hypothesis of Georges de Musil. This thesis is also known as the three functions, which incorporates kingship, war, and productivity. De Musil used this hypothesis to analyze the social and religious structures of the ancient Indo-European people. His three functions are that of the king, the warrior, and the peasant. The king covers rulership, law, and judgment. The warrior function covers the obvious function of war and battle. The peasant function covers the farmers and agriculture. Now the three functions, or the trifunctional hypothesis, can be useful for understanding certain aspects of a religion or culture, but it isn't necessarily the best way to approach the study of ancient religions. One common criticism of the trifunctional hypothesis is that some gods can't easily be fit into one of the functions. Let's take a look at Odin again. He is the king of the Norse gods, And he's also associated with war, 
poetry, wisdom, and magic in the form of the runes. He could easily fit into the first or second functions. The same holds true with Thor. He is a war and a storm god, but he also has connections with agriculture and fertility. He fulfills both the second and third functions. We know that Thor is connected with the peasant class from a poem called Harbored Song. In this poem, Thor engages in a verbal sparring match with a man named Harbored, who is actually Odin in disguise. Now, uh, Harbored refuses to ferry Thor across a river. One of Harbored's jabs at Thor comes in verse 24, when he says that Odin has the nobles who fall in battle, and Thor has the breed of serfs. But on to the hero's journey. Heroic myths are a popular subject in the field of comparative mythology. Joseph Campbell published one of the most influential books on the subject, The Hero with a Thousand Faces. It takes an in-depth look at the monomyth of the heroic initiation. Campbell describes the monomyth as follows. A hero ventures forth from the world of common day into a region of supernatural wonder. Fabulous forces are there encountered, and a decisive victory is won. The hero comes back from this mysterious adventure with the power to bestow boons on his fellow man. Along similar lines, we also have what the psychologist Carl Jung referred to as the collective unconsciousness. He believed that all members of a species share certain instincts. This has led humanity to develop similar archetypes that are found in vastly different cultures from around the world. Many ancient cultures, for example, personified the earth as the great mother. We also see the archetypes of the old wise man or the old wise woman, the tree of life, the underworld as a place of eternal punishment, and the celestial world of the heavens as a place of eternal reward. But getting back to the monomyth, it has also been applied to popular culture with people applying it to movies and other media. Star Wars is one of the most notable examples as many people compare the trials that Luke Skywalker goes through to the heroic initiation. However, Not everyone views the monomyth as being a useful tool for analyzing myths and legends. One of the biggest criticisms of the monomyth is that it is so vague as to be meaningless. And honestly, this is not an unfair statement. There are many different variations and themes expressed in the hero with a thousand faces. There is no perfectly uniform version of the journey. So it isn't hard to pick out certain themes and apply them to a movie, a story, or even a video game. One article I read also criticized the monomyth with leading filmmakers to follow specific themes to make safe films. That is, films that are likely to be universally acceptable. And once again... I do think this is a fair criticism, especially when you look at the number of reboots and remakes we see not just in movies, but other forms of media as well. However, the monomyth has had constructive uses as well. 
It can be used as a form of bibliotherapy. A person can look at the hero's journey and use it as a way to try to make sense of events that are occurring in his or her life. Now, I'm not really too much into the whole self-help thing, and I'm not really an expert in psychology, so I'm, I'm not sure if this can really be considered an effective form of counseling. But I guess if it's something that helps, and if it's something that helps you cope with a traumatic event that has occurred in your life, then I, I can see that as being a good thing. But to put it in the simplest terms, the hero's journey is often divided into three parts that take place in two worlds. The first world is an ordinary world. This is the mundane, everyday world we know of. The second world is the world of adventure, and this might be a physical or metaphysical place. Sometimes it is characterized as being the underworld or the realm of the gods. The world of adventure is where our hero faces his or her trials. The two worlds are separated by the threshold. The threshold is best understood as the point of no turning back, and it is not necessarily a physical or a magical border. The three parts of the hero's journey are the departure, the initiation, and the return. The departure is often described as the call to adventure. This is the event that makes the hero leave behind the mundane world that he has grown accustomed to. However, sometimes the hero refuses the call and needs something to prompt him to venture forth. But once the hero has accepted the call and crossed the threshold, there is no turning back. He must continue. During the early part of the journey, the hero usually encounters a mentor figure of some type. Often, this mentor takes the form of an elderly man or a woman. The mentor can also be a god or a supernatural creature. It is common for the hero to receive some sort of gift from the mentor. A good example is from Star Wars Episode Four when Obi-Wan gives Luke his father's lightsaber. Obi-Wan serves as one of Luke's mentors, and then of course in Empire Strikes Back, he meets up with Yoda who continues his training. Another good example is the myth of Perseus, where the hero receives various gifts from the gods that allow him to complete his quest. And if my memory serves me correctly, I believe uh, Hades gave him... Uh, the helmet that would let him turn invisible, and the sword that would let him cut off Medusa's head. Uh, Hermes gave him the bag to hold Medusa's head in, as well as slippers or sandals that would let him fly. And Athena gave him the shield that would protect him from turning into stone. With the hero's departure, he enters the initiation phase. This is where the hero is tested. Campbell referred to this as the Road of Trials. There are many different types of events present on the Road of Trials. Some common scenarios include temptation, a battle against a dragon, the descent into the underworld, the brother battle, and the meeting with the father god or the mother goddess. The dragon battle is pretty self-explanatory. 
This is a battle against a great beast that doesn't necessarily have to be a dragon. This is usually seen as a test of the hero's physical prowess. The brother battle can, can serve a similar function in the story. The brother battle isn't necessarily a fight against the hero's biological brother, but it can be against someone who knows the hero well. In some cases, the brother battle is the hero's actual brother, and it can serve as a real challenge as the hero may be forced to have to choose if he's going to kill someone that he is close to. Another common motif is the meeting with the father god or the mother goddess. The father god often represents power and authority over the hero. The mother goddess is often a symbol of the unconditional love that many parents have towards their children. However, sometimes the hero has an encounter with the figure known as the ogre mother or the ogre father. This figure represents a destructive masculine or feminine force. Medusa, from the Perseus myth, and Darth Vader from Star Wars can both be seen as examples of an ogre mother and an ogre father. But while the hero might struggle against the ogre mother or the ogre father, he might also have an atonement as well. This is where the hero finally meets and is initiated by one who represents ultimate authority, one with the power of life and death over the hero. And after all the trials, the hero finally wins the ultimate boon, the goal of his quest. The final phase is the return. After the hero has completed his struggles in the supernatural world, he must return to the mundane world. The hero might face more trials, including the return. It is common for the hero to go to a, another journey, usually by flight or by sea. It is also possible the hero might need to be rescued by an ally, especially if he is weak from the trials he has endured. The hero might even die and might need to be resurrected. But eventually, the hero crosses the threshold once again and returns to the normal world with the ultimate boon that he can bestow upon his fellow man. However, once the hero has crossed the threshold and returned, it isn't always an easy task, for now the hero has seen sights and undergone experiences that no other mortal man can dream of. For this reason, it might be difficult for him to reintegrate himself into the world he once knew. This is one aspect of the hero's journey that has potential to be used in therapy. I read an article a while ago where therapists have used this aspect of the hero's journey to help soldiers returning home from war. And I can see how that is a very fitting uh, comparison because when a soldier goes off to war, he may have experienced things that many of their fellow countrymen never will, which can make it challenging for these soldiers to return to an ordinary life. I mean, one example that I can think of off the top of my head, uh, around 4th of July, you know, here in the U.S., it's very common to set off fireworks. There's a lot of places that'll have, you know, big, huge fireworks displays. And then, since it's legal to use fireworks around this time, people might 
go buy fireworks from the store and then start setting them off in their driveway or in the street. Unfortunately, this does have the potential to be very disturbing for combat veterans. And I've seen, I know in some places, they actually get signs for these combat veterans to put outside their house so they realize that, hey, you know, the the guy who lives here, the man or the woman who lives here may have been through combat. So by setting off the fireworks, you know, the noise and the light could have the potential to trigger memories. And, you know, that could be a very unpleasant experience for this soldier. So that's one use of the monomyth that I can see be very constructive, especially when it comes to helping people who've been through battle and, as I said, have endured things that I never have and probably never will experience. Well, as I mentioned before, the monomyth can be applied to more than just mythology. One game that I feel captures the hero's journey is Final Fantasy IV. Now, as the game starts out, the protagonist, Cecil, is a dark knight in service of the king of a nation called Baron. When he starts to feel regret over the things he has done, the king strips him of his rank and sends Cecil on a mission to the village of Mist. Cecil is accompanied by his best friend, the dragoon, Cain. I see this as a call to adventure, because this is the event that sets the plot of the game in motion. When the two arrive at their destination, the box they are carrying bursts open and monsters swarm out, destroying the village. Cain and Cecil encounter a young girl named Rydia, who is the last of the summoners. Cain insists that the girl must be slain, but Cecil refuses. Rydia summons a titan out of panic. The creature causes an earthquake that separates Cain and Cecil. When the Dark Knight awakens, Cain is nowhere to be found, and an injured Rydia lies nearby. He takes the girl to the nearest town to recover. In the middle of the night, they are attacked by soldiers from Baron who are coming to hunt down Rydia. This is when Cecil crosses the threshold, because... He chooses not to turn Rydia over to the soldiers, but instead kills the soldiers to defend her. Well, this is the threshold because now he is a traitor to his homeland and he cannot return. He has no choice but to move forward. While on the road of trials, Cecil encounters several obstacles that Campbell mentions. One of the most significant occurs after Cecil gets separated from his party. The boat Cecil and his allies are traveling on gets attacked by Leviathan. When Cecil awakens, he finds himself near the city of Mysidia, which is the town that he attacked in the game's opening cutscene. He meets with the town's elder, who serves as a mentor figure for him. He informs Cecil that in order to cleanse himself of the darkness within his soul, he must climb Mount Ordeals to the east. The Elder sends him with two young wizards, a brother and sister duo named Palum and Porum. Upon climbing the mountain, Cecil passes a test and becomes a paladin. After his test, a mysterious voice addresses Cecil and refers to him as his son. And I see this as an example of what uh, Campbell called the atonement with the father. 
The brother battle also plays a very important role in Final Fantasy IV. Cecil struggles against two such characters during his story. Cain is the first example. He is Cecil's friend, but falls under mind control. And Cain comes into conflict with Cecil at a couple different points in the game. The second example of a brother battle takes the form of his real brother, Golbez. Eventually, both Cain and Golbez make amends with Cecil. But as a side note, Cain's relationships with both of these characters is expanded upon a little bit in the game's 2009 sequel, Final Fantasy IV, The After Years. Cecil's journey takes him to fantastic worlds. His travels take him to the underworld, where he meets up with the dwarves and reunites with Rydia. He also travels to the land of summoned monsters, and encounters both Leviathan and his wife, Ashura. These figures can be interpreted as both meeting with the father god and the mother goddess, as well as both the ogre father and the ogre mother. Both will help Cecil and his party, but he must defeat them first in order to win their aid. Since this is a fantasy role-playing game, there are, of course, dragons to be encountered. However, the dragon battle that matters is the one that takes place on the moon. Cecil and his party journey to the moon and they travel to a cave called the Lair of the Father. This is where they encounter Bahamut, king of the summoned monsters. As with Leviathan and Asura, Cecil and his party must defeat Bahamut in order to win his aid. As the game nears the end, Cecil and his party make their way into the moon's interior and they encounter the final boss, Zeromus. The boss easily defeats Cecil and his allies. All appears lost, but the game jumps to a cutscene showing the Elder of Mysidia back on Earth in the Tower of Wishes. This is where we see an example of a hero in need of rescue. The Elder is accompanied by Palum, Porum, and several of Cecil's other allies that did not travel to the moon with him. Their prayers restore Cecil and his party, giving them the strength they need to defeat Zeromus and save the world. So there you have it, an example of how you can apply the monomyth and the heroic initiation to a video game. And of course, that's just one of many, many different examples. Uh, Final Fantasy IV sequel uh, also draws upon some of the similar themes, and I'm sure there's many, many other video games out there that do follow very similar themes to the ones I just mentioned. Well, that wraps this episode up for now. Well, I hope you enjoyed the show, even though it was just me monologuing and essentially describing how you can use a respected work of comparative mythological studies to interpret a video game. And as I said before, not everyone thinks that the monomyth is this really great uh, idea Uh, Again, the reason I mentioned before is that some of Campbell's ideas were so vague that you could apply it to just about anything. And maybe that's kind of the fun of the monomyth and being aware of the, the story of the heroic initiation. Because who knows, maybe the next time you sit down to play a video game or watch a movie, maybe you might keep in mind some of these things I talked about today 
and use that to try to analyze and interpret the movie. Now, of course, I recommend doing that maybe like the second or third time you've seen a movie because, hey, you know, when we watch a movie for the first time, we usually want to just really focus on the movie itself rather than looking for symbolism and interpretations and, and whatnot. Thanks again for listening. Again, you can find Point of Insanity Game Studios Geekery in General podcast on podbean.com. Go to poigamestudio.podbean.com. You can download this episode and many, many others. You can, of course, find several of the episodes on iTunes as well. And if you like to watch videos of video games, feel free to stop by Point of Insanity Game Studio on YouTube and check out some of my video episodes at correspond with uh, some of my podcast episodes I've done. And of course, if you have ideas for things that you'd like to see me cover in future episodes, or if you just want to leave comments, please stop by Point of Insanity Game Studio on Facebook and feel free to leave a comment. And while you're there, hey, please like the page. I do appreciate that. So with that being said, thanks for tuning in. Have a good evening or morning or afternoon. Whatever it is, wherever you are, and happy gaming.